Welcome back to the Evidence for Faith podcast with Michael Lane. If you're enjoying our content and would like to help us keep making more episodes on this podcast, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org slash give. That's evidence, the number four, faith.org slash give. And while you're on the website, make sure to check out some of the other things we got going on, like our specialty programs. We've got one in marine biology, which is an entire marine biology course down in the Florida Keys. And it's great for students ages 14 and up. We also have our biblical archaeology tour in Israel with archaeologists Dr. Stephen Notley. That's coming up very, very soon. So make sure to check those out. And we also have our bookings calendar open. So if you're looking for a speaker to come speak at your event, church, group, school, whatever it may be, make sure to get in your request in right away. And finally, if you have enjoyed a particular series on this podcast, or you want to go back and look at a particular episode, our courses page has every single series we've ever done on the podcast nicely organized in its own course page. And sometimes there's a few extra little downloads and things you can use if you want to go back and study a particular series or share it with a friend or a family. All these links are going to be down in the description if you want to refer back to them after you're done listening to today's episode. And with that, thanks for being here and I'll let Michael take it away. Hi, and welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane. And today we're going to be doing a lesson in this basics of apologetics that is a really important one because it's a question I get asked very frequently. And it's also a lesson that I teach frequently when I'm asked to go speak for colleges and, and other institutions. Uh, but to begin with, um, let me just tell you a little story here as an introduction as to what we're going to be talking about in this lesson. You see, this was many years ago this event happened, decades ago actually. I was sitting at a table taking a break uh, while I was teaching. And I would sat down with my Bible and I opened up my Bible to the passage that I'd been studying that morning uh, when I got up. And I had a little break here, a little bit of time, and I started reading this. Well, as I'm reading this, another teacher, a colleague of mine, came in uh, to the lounge where I was at, the area where I was, I was sitting, and saw me sitting there at the table reading my Bible, and came over to the table, pulled out a chair, and sat down, and said, excuse me, but um, can I ask you something? And I said, certainly. As I closed my Bible, I said, what's the problem? And he says, no problem. I just have a question for you. I don't understand something. And I go, okay. Uh, he says, I know that you are a scientist and you know you think on things that is teaching a biology class and stuff. I, un I understand all that, but what I don't understand about you is how you could put so much faith in that book you have there in front of you. And when I came in and I saw you reading your book, I just, I just had to ask, how can you put so much faith and stock into a book that didn't even exist until 1611? Now I knew when he said 1611, he was talking about the King James Version. And I said, so what about, what about 1611? And I knew what he was talking about. He said, this is what he said, though. He says, well, that's when the first Bible was written. And he says, before that, it was all done by oral tradition until 1611. And um, when he said that, I said, oh, my gosh, you don't understand. Uh, you haven't obviously studied this very carefully because I said, not being very polite to him, I said, there are a lot of other Bibles written before King James authorized the 1611 authorized version called the King James Bible today. It's what we call it. And I said, that was, you're correct. It was in 1611, but oh my gosh, there were so many others. And I said, you know, there was, uh, it was never done by oral tradition. Even in Exodus, God tells Moses, write this down. And, and there were prophets that God said, write this down. It wasn't memorize this and pass it on. It was write this down. And there is a tremendous amount of evidence that the Word of God has been uh, copied over and over throughout time. And he, he didn't quite understand uh, everything I was telling him, and I didn't have time to go through a lot of stuff, but I said, I can give you information on this. The thing is, aside of that story, how we got the Bible is a question that comes up frequently for me. People will often ask me, Michael, how in the world did we get the Bible? Well, if you're going to do apologetics, if you're going to study apologetics, or if you want to get into apologetics, you really have to know how to defend that the Bible has been around for a long time and that it is accurate. And that's what we're going to get into. We're going to talk about how did certain books get in? 
How, how did they come up with the idea of what should be in there? Um, and, and so we're going to go back and, and take a look at the accuracy of how they, they kept everything so perfect and that it wasn't full of errors. And as some people say today, that it's been altered, as this teacher said, it's been altered so many times because of, of oral tradition. How we're going to show you that is not the case. So as we look at the, the Bible itself here, how we got the Bible, let's get into what the Bible actually is. Now, the Bible is inspired by God. It is inspired by God. It tells us that directly right in there. And matter of fact, in the, ver uh, the passage of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and, uh, and 17. Now, I want to read this out of the God's Word translation. And it's, it's a very good translation, more of a newer one. But it really makes it easy to understand. And 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17 reads, Every scripture passage is inspired by God. All of them are useful for teaching, pointing out errors, correcting people, training them for a life that has God's approval. They equip God's servants so that they are completely prepared to do good things. Now, that is one passage right there, that it's God-inspired. But let's take another look at a different passage, 2 Tim, or 2 Peter verses, uh, or chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Again, out of the God's Word translation. Look what this says, because this is really cool. I love this passage. Uh, Peter writes, first you must understand this. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. No prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit as humans spoke under God's direction. Now, that tells us right there, the Bible is God-inspired. Where it's talking about prophecies, he's talking about the Word of God, which is what we call the Bible today. It came down from God. It was inspired by God. Very few other, if any, other religious books actually make that claim. The Bible's very unique in this. And the Bible is made up of 66 different books. Um, it was written in a span of over 1,600 years, from approximately about uh, 1500, 1,500 or so B.C., 1450, somewhere around there, B.C. to um, around 100 A.D. These are just rough dates, but give you about 1,600 years, a span of this thing being put together. And it was written by more than 40 different kings. Uh, it was written by different prophets. It was, it was written by... Um, or not 40 different kings, but 40 kings, prophets, leaders, followers of Jesus. You have fishermen, you have scholars, you have shepherds, um, you have uh, doctors. You have a tremendous amount of background of people as they put this together, these 40 people who put it together. Now, the Old Covenant, what uh, people normally call the Old Testament, I prefer the term Old Covenant because that's what the word testament means as a covenant or an agreement, a contract. The Old Covenant is 30 39 books. Now, it was written from somewhere around close to 1500 BC to it was finished around 400 BC. So there's a long span there. And we know that it was written because there are uh, scrolls. Um, some are made on, of silver. Um, there's, there's verses that have been found uh, inscribed in, in stone, and uh, some have been found written on clay and stuff. We, we find these things written, so we know that. And, and plus there was um, there, there's some scrolls that, uh, what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which actually were closer to about 300 to 100 BC. But the thing is, it's very, very old. Um, so it was written down for a long time. Now, the New Covenant, the New Testament, has 27 books. 27 books. Now, when was, was it written, these 27 books? Only in a short span of time, between about, uh, this is in AD, AD, around 45 to about 100 AD, in that range. Um, the oldest new covenant fragment that we have, archaeologically speaking here, is uh, from John chapter 18. And John, um, of course, was living, he was the last of the apostles to die, died somewhere around 120 or so uh, A.D. But um, we have other pieces of documents of the new covenant written in Greek on papyrus um, that date around 110 to 130. So we have... Um, in museums and stuff today, a lot of evidence for this. Now, the Old Covenant, let's go back to that for a second. Now, we've established these two covenants. 
The Old Covenant was written primarily in Hebrew. There is a little bit of Aramaic or Chaldean in it. Um, the book of Daniel contains quite a bit, um, and the book of Ezra has some, but mostly the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, and that uh, was the language of the Hebrew people because the Old Covenant was given to the Hebrew people. The New Covenant, the New Testament, was written in Greek. After Alexander the Great conquered the world, he Hellenized the world, giving everybody one language to speak, and it was Greek. So when the New Testament, New Covenant was put together, they did this in Greek. And so everybody could be read all over the world. Uh, the Old Covenant could only be read by people, since it was written in Hebrew, could only be written in ancient times by somebody who understood the Hebrew language. By the time the New Testament comes along, and this is Thank God for his planning and, and design of having Alexander the Great conquer the world. He um, unified the world with one common language, and that was Greek. And then the New Testament is put in Greek. And actually, right after he, he lives and, and dies, Alexander, that is, um, the Old Testament was actually written into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. But let's go back now. So we've, we see the two different languages here, primarily, that, that the Bible is composed of. Now, of course, we are speaking English, and so we have English translations. And how do those get about? Well, we'll talk about that towards the end of this lesson. Now, in the Old Covenant or Old Testament, the events were written down in Hebrew. And like I say, a few sections, like in Daniel, Ezra, we find a few Chaldean uh, or Aramaic um, passages and stuff like that. Um, in the Exodus, Moses actually is told by God to write things down. Other writers, as you go through the Old Covenant, were inspired by God. Um, and this included the shepherds, the kings, et cetera, et cetera, all these different people, these prophets and stuff, to actually write this down. And they did this primarily on leather scrolls. Um, this is what was called, commonly we call these the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Covenant, or today it's called the Tanakh. Um, but that's what we have of the Old Covenant. Now, how do we know anything about this? Well, we do know from history and different sources in history that there was a guy by the name of Ezra. He has a book in the Old Covenant. Ezra lived around 450 BC. Now, according to Jewish tradition and other writings, Ezra was a priest and he was a scribe. A scribe is a person who copies things. And he was the one who collected and arranged some of the books of the Hebrew Bible. And he did this around 450 BC. So the point I'm making here is around 450 BC, they start to get organized. The books are being organized. And he arranges like the history books, the, the ones of prophets, the songs and, and things like this. That's what he puts together. But here we have, now check the date. I'm going to often give you dates in this. If you don't like um, history with its dates, well, just you're going to have to bear with us on this because this is the question is how we got the Bible is going to have to do with a lot with dates. And so that's in 450 BC. We know that the Old Covenant is put together here. As I said just prior to this, Alexander ordered the world to, to speak one language or to at least be able to speak one language. And so in 250 BC, um, about 72 rabbi experts in um, ancient Hebrew language and their doctrine, etc. These rabbis, 72 of them, uh, or it could have been 70, we're not exactly sure, but um, they get together to do the task of changing the Old Covenant, uh, the Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Scriptures, into Greek. This is called the Septuagint. You can buy a copy today. I have a copy sitting right here in front of me of my desk right now. And so we have here, um, this, this one here, this is the Septuagint. And if you were to come up here afterwards and take a look, you're going to see it's written in Greek. Um, now, it was translated around 250 to maybe around 100 BC, somewhere in there. And it was done in the city of Alexandria. Alexandria in Egypt had a huge Jewish population, massively large. Um, so many Jews lived there, and so these scholars were living there, and they're the place, uh, that's where this all took place. By the way, Alexandria also had the largest library of the ancient world. So, now why is it called the Septuagint? Where do we get that word? Well, Septuagint means literally 70. 70 which is referring to the tradition that 70 or 72 men translated it. If you're reading something from the Septuagint, um, if you read a, a passage, a verse or something like that, you will often see it abbreviated by the Roman numeral LXX. 
and that is the Roman numeral for 70. Um, X, of course, is a 10. Uh, you have L, L is 50, and then two X is following, so that's 10 plus 10. So 50 plus 10 plus 10, that's 70. That's where we get this. So that's around 200 to 100 BC. Now, again, the King James Version is not the first version of the Bible and stuff like this. Here, we're still in the BCs, and we have complete scriptures that are already put together. And the Septuagint, uh, there were 53 books in this translation, um, and it was arranged. As I say, it was put together. There was the Torah, the first five books, the law. Then you have the history. There was the poetry, and then the prophecies. Ezra helped organize all of that prior to the Septuagint being put together. But that is how the Septuagint is organized. So, now, the writers of the Old Covenant and stuff... Um, Everything is written down, and the, the Septuagint was very popular. And it was actually the Bible that many of the New Testament uh, passages and stuff are actually quoted from. It's the Septuagint. New Testament, as I told you, was written in Greek. Well, this is a Greek Bible, Old Testament Bible, so they often quoted it out of that. If you've ever wondered sometimes, when you look up a passage, say in the book of Matthew, that is quoting a verse from the Old Covenant, and then you turn back in your translation, you see it's not actually the exact same. Sometimes what it is, it's because it was translated from Hebrew to Greek, and then they're quoting it Greek, and so that's why it sometimes is a little different. Um, Matthew uses a lot of quotes from the Old Covenant, as does Hebrews. Hebrews has more than any of the other books in the New Testament. Um, Paul quotes a lot from it. But um, the writers quote from all, but this is what's really interesting. In the New Covenant, the writers quote every single one of the Old Testament books outside of eight. Out of all the books in the Old Testament, only eight are not quoted in the New Testament. If they're quoting it, that means it has to exist. Thus, they have it already. And this is around 45 to 100 when the New Testament is being put together. And these are the followers of Jesus put it together. So we're in AD now, AD 45 to 100, and they're constantly quoting from the Old Covenant. So it had to be written down because they're constantly quoting it and they talk about it that way. When you talk about Paul's writings in particular, his writings are being circulated throughout the New Testament church all over the empire as they were written. And we see this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. It talks about this, that Paul's writings, which were considered to be scripture, many of them, not all of them, but many of his writings, uh, or some of his writings anyway, were considered to be holy scripture when they were written. And so they were being passed around. They didn't have copy machines. They didn't have printing press yet. So they had to be hand copied, but they would be sent to different churches as being inspired by God. That's what came up with during uh, what was happening in 45 to 100, during the age, the early age of the church. And Paul's writings were already being called scripture, as I said. By the year 68 AD, Paul's writings, according to 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, Paul's writings were being considered, certain ones, being considered inspired by God. And Holy Scripture is how they were being termed. Um, that's during the New Testament time. That's in 68 AD. So I keep quoting 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. What does it actually say? Okay, for this, I'm going to go to the English Standard Version. It's a word-for-word -word translation. This is 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. So what does Peter write? Is this. This is what our dear brother Paul wrote to you about, using the wisdom God gave him. He talks about this subject in all of his letters. Some things in his letters are hard to understand. Ignorant people and people who aren't sure of what they believe distort what Paul says in his letters the same way they distort the rest of the scriptures. See where it says the rest of the scriptures. Thus, many of Paul's writings are being included as Holy Scripture. You get this right in, the, right in the Bible, clear as day right there. So, the New Testament is written and it is completed somewhere around 100 A.D. We're not exactly sure of the exact date, but uh, or exact year, but it's roughly around 100 A.D. because John writes the last of the books in there, and then he dies somewhere between 110 and 120. Many people think a little bit on the later side there. Um, now, 
do we have the original writings of the of any of these books? No. They were written on animal skin. They were written on uh, the New Testament as being written on papyrus. That stuff doesn't last very long if it's not treated in special ways. Um, the original writings were copied and circulated so that by 150, though, by 150 A.D., it's wide enough use that they start being called the New Testament. Yes, the New Covenant, the New Testament, was, was being organized by 150 A.D. This is uh, just a few years after the Apostle John has died. So um, the, at that early part of our early church fathers, they have organized the writings into what we call the New Covenant or New Testament. Um, and of course, now we have the Old Testament too, um, already being done. And it, we have found scrolls. As a matter of fact, in 1970, there was an Old Testament scroll of the book of Leviticus found in a synagogue that was discovered uh, near En Gedi, right by the Dead Sea. And what is fascinating about this, this scroll, it was burnt, but as they recently photographed this and were able to see it, because you can't unroll it, it's a burnt scroll, um, probably on animal hide, but it was burnt. And the thing is, um, we have now the technology, Smithsonian Magazine did, a, did a, um, an article about how they photographed this to be able to read it. It is the book of Leviticus. You can read all the lines of the book of Leviticus. And what's fascinating is even the paragraph spacing is the same as what you would find in, say, like a New American Standard Bible. I mean, we're really talking accurate. And the only difference that you find in that scroll to what we have in a New American Standard is primarily the spelling of places and names the, the, and, and grammar. It's all, all the doctrine is exactly the same. And that scroll dates back to about 200 A.D., um, even though it's an Old Testament scroll. But that's about all we know about that, um, that thing. Now, um, let's get back to as we're talking about this and um, as it's being put together. Between the years... 200 and 300 AD, we have, let's just call early translations. The earliest translations, now remember, it was written first in Hebrew, the Old Testament in Hebrew, and then it was put into Greek, and then the New Testament was only written in Greek, so we have that. Now we have a complete Greek copy, basically, you can say, of the Bible. And then, and between the years 200 and 300, it's going to be copied into some other languages. It'll be copied into Latin. It'll be copied into Coptic Egyptian. It will be Syriac uh, writing also. We have different translations like that going back to 200 to 300 AD. But a question that will come up, and a lot of people wonder, how did they figure out what books go in there and what ones don't? Great question. And that is a question everybody, every Christian should know the answer to. When we pick up our Bible, how do we know that these books are actually God-inspired? Because Bart Ehrman um, has written books like um, the Lost Scriptures um, and Misquoting Jesus and some other bestsellers that he's made a career on, um, saying that there's many books that should be in the Bible that aren't. Well, why didn't those books, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, uh, the Gospel of Peter, um, and, and all these other ones, that uh, the Proto-Gospel of James, why didn't they get put in there? Well, there's a reason for that. First of all, those Gospels were not written by the originals. The Gospels that we have in our Bible date back as early as we can see during the time of the Apostles. So in other words, the Apostle Peter wrote those um, wrote First and Second Peter. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. Matthew wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Even though we don't have a copy of it, we do have ancient writings that refer to these books already being in print. So we know that there are certain books already there. Um, in some cases, there were uh, writing about how they don't like these books. People who are unbelievers were were quoting like Matthew's book and stuff and saying, "Oh, we don't like this, man. You know, this isn't this. Jesus really isn't the Son of God and stuff like this." And so they reference these things. But the church fathers accepted our early church fathers. After the time of John's death, they get together and they start trying to come up with um, what's called a canonical uh, book. Uh, one book, finding out what actually belongs in there. Now, to do this, canonical, 
comes from a Greek word, the canon, sometimes it's referred to. And the canon, to fit into the, the, uh, the New Testament, it had to, uh, to be part of the canon. Well, now we're not talking about a piece of artillery here. Canon comes from a Greek word meaning, to, uh, meaning the rule of something. Not like reigning over like a king would do. The rule meaning to measure. It's a rule, a, a standard, if you will, a measurement, something to qualify something. And that's called the canon. And it was a, the rule of faith and truth is the definition of what the canon is. It's the rule of faith and truth. And so they had certain rules that, that had to be to fit into and be considered to be Holy Scripture. Now, the canon refers to the authoritative books that are officially today is what we have in our Bibles, approved as Holy Scripture. And they're based on this canon, this rule of faith. Now, what is this canon? What are these rules? Well, there's, there's a lot of these. There, there are a set of standards, as I said. It's like a standard to measure by. And they had to pass these tests. Um, just to give you an idea, um, I mean, we could spend a lot of time just talking on this. But to give you some ideas, first of all, they had to be, as far as they could tell, by divine inspiration. Just like Peter wrote about Paul's books, uh, the letters that Paul was writing, he called them Holy Scripture. So they have to be divine inspiration, coming directly from God to the person. If they don't appear to be that, they don't get caught in there. They had to be also written by a person who was an apostle or a follower of Jesus or one of the apostles. For instance, Luke. Luke is not an apostle. Uh, Mark was not an apostle, but they were associated with Jesus or with um, one of the other apostles. Thus, they became qualified this way. The gospel of Judas, the gospel of Peter, and stuff. These were not written by those people, because those books didn't exist until at least 100 to 200 years after the time of the apostles' death. So some of these obviously can't be written by the original apostle, thus they don't fit the canon. Another thing, and this is an important one, accuracy. Part of the canon was how accurate is this letter or this book? How accurate? Does it fit with all of the other known pieces of, of considered um, Holy Scripture? Do they fit? Is there truth in all of this? Luke actually writes in his gospel at the, in chapter 1 that he went back and he checked and interviewed the people to see if, uh, to, to make an accurate account. So accuracy is very important. Another part of the rule was doctrinal truth. Is what is found in this book that we're, let's say, Exhibit A, is what do we find in Exhibit A fit with what's in, in the Holy Scriptures of, of say, like um, in Paul's writings or, say, like in, in John's writings or in Mark's writings or in Matthew's writings? Do they fit perfectly? If they are contradicting the doctrine, they cannot be considered uh, passing the canon. They are not then included in it. Another thing is consistency. Is there consistency in these books? Um, do they flow with the others? Do they, do they make sense of everything? Is everything, there's, there's no contradiction in other words, that is, everything is, is consistent. Um, also, another thing that they looked at, looked at was, and this one's interesting, to be in the canon, they had to consider that book to have power. Power. God's power moves through things. Just might be wondering, well, how can that be? Let me ask you this. Those of you who are listening who are born-again Christians, think back to your salvation experience. Didn't something that helped in your salvation experience for you to come to faith as Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, was there some verse or verses that helped with that? That's power. Power that changes a person's life. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through this, and he teaches us things from Scripture, and there's power in that. It changes lives. Now, I'll tell you, there are a lot of classic books around that just, um, they're good reads, but they don't change lives. For instance, I, I, I remember reading Moby Dick, and it didn't change my life. Um, I read um, To Kill a Mockingbird, didn't change my life. Uh, Silas Marner did not change my life. 
Hamlet did not change my life. They're good reads, but there's no Holy Spirit power in them. That's what they would look for in these things. And also, they had to be accepted by the people of God, by the church leaders, that they would all agree these books fit in here. These letters fit in. They, are, they pass all the canon, and they would actually, in a way, vote to see if these things would fit in. Now, there was other things that make the canon, but it gives you an idea. They weren't just randomly, oh, we found a book here, and it says it's the, the third gospel of Philip. Oh, well, Philip was an apostle. Let's put this in here. No, it had to pass the canon. It had to pass all these these standardized um, rules and regulations to do this. That's how we got it. Now, it's interesting that between the year, um, towards the end of the year, um, or early in the year 200 to 250 or something like that, um, one of the early church fathers, his name was Origen. Origen actually listed in some of his writings, we have quite a bit of what he wrote um, about the early church, and he actually lists 21 books in the New Testament as being inspired by God. That would fit what would you know, be determined to be the canon. Um, just not, uh, a couple of decades later, we have a guy by the name of Eusebius. Eusebius, who was also, we have a lot of his writings, we use them a lot in, in uh, scholarly works and academia. Eusebius, he listed 22 accepted books. So we see that there are books being set up like that. Now, that are being put into the canon. We come to the year 313 AD. Now, they're putting together the New Covenant, the New Testament. They're collecting these things, and about this time, um, in 313, something major happens in the world. Constantine is the emperor, and Constantine is a Christian, and he um, now authorizes and legalizes, I should say, legalizes Christianity to be the religion of uh, the Roman Empire. This was major because now you got a Christian. And Eusebius was a uh, close friend and got to be a close friend of Constantine. So that was in 313. We start seeing this. And, and Constantine is trying to get, um, he's too, is wanting to get together the new covenant. We have the old covenant from the Jews. He's trying to put together the new covenant. And so they're focusing on this. It takes a few decades before this all gets settled with all the, the books that they had and, and studying them carefully and putting them through the tests of the canon and stuff. It wouldn't be until around 397 A.D., 397 AD, the books are finally confirmed as canonical. And this takes place, they get all these Christian leaders together in Carthage, and it's called the Synod of Carthage, takes place in 397. And, and that's when they do this, and they recognize um, what is the canon. It is now established in the 27 books that we have of our New Testament. That's where it was finalized at that point. So just a couple of years later now, um, just three years, in fact, by the year 400, the standard 27 are actually being called the New Testament, and they're being accepted, and they're confirmed by many of our early church fathers, Anathasius, Jerome, um, Augustine, three different church councils, because we're talking about the Word of God. This is serious stuff, so they want to make sure it is accurate. Then, um, as I just mentioned, a guy by the name of Jerome. Jerome Remember, everything at this point is like in Greek. Well, the Roman Empire primary language was Latin. So Jerome starts to translate scriptures then into a Latin version. It takes him a little bit of the time to do this, like 25 years. Um, he, he starts it around 410 and uh, finishes it around 435. This translation that he made in Latin, there's still copies of it today. It's called the Latin Vulgate. Still, in some churches, particularly Roman Catholic churches, and some of them, they still use this as their basic Bible, and has been used since the um, this is the the fifth century, since the four hundred um, A.D.s. This has been used, but then something else happens in world history. By the time the year five hundred comes, the Roman Empire collapses. Now, everybody was speaking either Greek or Latin at that time, pretty much throughout the empire. The um, Germanic tribes from the north 
uh, come down and they conquer. And by doing this, they destroy the Roman Empire, break it all up, and now we have a whole lot of different languages again. That's all happening again. Other than Latin and Greek, other languages are popping up from all these Northern European uh, tribes and stuff, and so now we're back to having different languages. Well, at the same time as this is going on, there's a group of Jews that are determined to preserve the Holy Scriptures. Now, these are Jews, so they're only working with the Old Covenant. That was their emphasis, was the Old Covenant, because they're Jewish. Now, these people uh, were highly trained, extremely highly educated and experts in their language and also in talents. They were scribes. They copied. Remember, there's no printing press. There's no Xerox machines or anything. So they had to hand copy. And they are called the Masoretes. The Masoretes come up with a methodology of uh, copying the Holy Scriptures. And since it's the Word of God, it's going to be treated as, with such respect that they're going to make extremely accurate copies. They even get into different type of, of methods that they develop in doing this. For instance, one of the things they did was they would count the letters. When they would copy a book, they would count the letters of it and to make sure there's no errors. So, I mean, they had a whole lot of different types of standards that they set up in doing this. Now, again, these were special Jewish, highly educated scribes. They're entrusted. Their whole career is just for making copies of God's Word, of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Covenant. They do this for over 400 years, almost 500 years they spend doing this. So generation after generation are highly trained to do this, and they make these copies. And um, they have, like I say, a very meticulous system for even counting the number of the words and the letters and even the spaces between the words in each book. And if they ever, when they finish and, and they're doing something or in the middle of it, they find out they make an error, what they would do is they would burn and bury the scroll with respect according to Jewish law. That's what had happened to them. Now, to make sure that they're making a really accurate copy, now again, this is between 400 and 500, or 500 and 1000 BC roughly. It's after the fall of the Roman Empire primarily. These scribes have set such a set of safeguards, if you will, to make sure that what they're doing is accurate. So accurate that when they finished making a copy what they have now got done, what they have now finished and completed is no longer called a copy. It's called an original. Yes. They use an original. They make a copy. When they finish, the copy is now called an original. It would be exactly the same. There were so many check things. Now, I know you're wondering, well, what kind of check things did they have? What type of methods did they use? Well, they had, let me just give you about maybe, I don't know, uh, uh, more than a dozen here, just really simple, uh, that they had. Scripture had to be written on, um, the, these things were put on animal skin, and it had to be of a clean animal. It just couldn't go down and get a pig skin and do it. You had to use a clean animal. And the skins, to make a scroll, you have to fasten it together, animal skin to animal skin, because you can't hardly find a 40 foot long you know sheep someplace you got to sew skins together and you would have to make strings also from clean animals that was a second thing a third thing that they would do is they would count the number of columns as they have their original they're counting how many columns are on that scroll and they're gonna have the exact same number on their new scroll um, even the length of the column the spacing is exact uh, it must not extend over 48 lines and no more are less than 48 lines and it can't go over 60. So the spacing has to be very, very accurate because not all animals are exactly the ex same perfect size as the other. Fifth thing, the breadth of the columns, how, how wide the columns are, had to be 30 letters in width. So that's also another test that they set up. Um, a sixth thing, they would copy uh, the, the whole copy, the whole scroll would have to be lined. And you have to write on these lines. If three words, for instance, were not written on a line, like as I was a teacher, people, I'd give an assignment to read, write a page on something. And sometimes people at the bottom of the page would, you know, have a little arrow um, going to the right. You turn the paper over and they would finish writing their sentence or they would write it along the margin or something. Couldn't do this. This is the word of God. It has to be perfect. So if you have three words written without a line, 
you're getting done to the thing and you find out, oh my gosh, I got two, or I got five words left over or four or three words. I have to destroy the whole thing. Got to start all over. That's how it was. Uh, even the ink that they use had to be a special recipe. You just couldn't go down to Walmart and buy a bottle of ink. Um, and the, to start with, you have to have an original to start with, and you can't make any deviations. When you're done, it's got to look just like that one. So you have that as a template. Now this one, this is an amazing step that they did. Not one letter or one word could be written from the original to the copy by memory. The scribe actually was required painstakingly, I'm sure, to actually copy letter by letter, not word or sentence to sentence, letter by letter is how it was done, how long that must have taken. Um, and even as they're putting the spacing or the, the letters down, they had to space it just perfectly. There was a special rule for spacing. And each section of, of scripture, there had to be the breadth of nine consonants. So they had more spacing regulations. And there must be, in between, uh, with books that have uh, multiple, like the Torah, you have to have three lines between the different books. Um, even that spacing was important. Matter of fact, when you talk about the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of Moses, it had to end when you're making a copy, it had to end at the very end of the last line at the very end of the scroll. If it didn't do that, you had to start destroy it and start all over again. You know, you can't use whiteout or something like that. Um, you've, you can't use an eraser. You had to destroy it and start all over. Even in doing this, the scribes would have to take a bath first as a sign of cleansing and purification because they're working with the word, the holy word of God. And they would sit in full Jewish attire as they did this. And even how they wrote this one. One of these things I was puzzled by, I had to ask a rabbi years ago, why this one? Because one of the rules that these Masoretes had was they would use a stylus, which they would dip into ink and then write onto the, the skin. And one of the rules was you could not write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink. So if you're writing something and you're coming up to the name of God, you have to be looking ahead. And um, when you come to the name of God, you can't um, dip your pen into or your stylus back into ink. And I was puzzled by this. I had to ask a rabbi, why is that? And they said, because a stylus, when you dip it in there, the first letter sometimes smears. You cannot smear the holy name of God. That is blasphemy. And I was like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Um, and even if a king or an official was to come in and address you while you write the name of God, they were to ignore them, even ignore this ruler and king, even upon penalty of death, as they're writing the name of God. Once you start writing the name of God, you can't stop, no matter what. You are committed to finishing the name of God before you move on or do anything. So, and there were more, more rules. These were just a few. And as I said, if a mistake happened, um, in most cases, the scroll was buried and then burned. Or in a few cases, I have found out in some, uh, according to some rabbis, that it was actually able to be used in synagogues for teaching, but it would not be considered Holy Scripture. But it would be something that they could use as a reading class or, um, or teaching something like that. But that was rare. That was uh, a rarity. Um, and so that's how the Masoretes did it. And what ends up happening, even though 500 years pass through this, you end up with such accurate, accurate um, copies being made. Do we have any, accurate, uh, any evidence of this? Wouldn't it be cool if we had one of these ancient documents like that, that we could compare it with? Well, it just so happens we do. There's what's called the Masoretic Manuscript. At the end of the Roman Empire, a group of these scribes had been preserving. And like I say, for about 500 years, they did this. When it got to about 960 AD, so just before uh, the year 1000, um, one of these scribes, we even know his name because he wrote his name down. His name was Aaron ben Asher. And he was one of these who was dedicated to make copies. And he decided to make a special copy of the Holy Word of God but what he did is he went back to find the oldest copy he could find. And he found one that dated back all the way back to the time of the New Testament being written at the time of the apostles. He found one and then he made a copy of that. What's happened is that copy 
has survived to this day. It's called the Masoretic Manuscript, and most of our Bibles are actually based upon that one manuscript. Now, the thing is, we've been talking about now how we copied it and how accurate, like I said, it wasn't done by oral tradition. Now we get to about, um, during this period of time of the Masoretes, something else is happening between the years 600 and 700 um, AD. Something is going on. There's a guy by the name of um, Bede. Bede is a monk. He's a scholar. He lives in England. And he decides to translate the Bible instead of being in Latin or Greek, he decides to put it into Old English. And he does this, he, um, he finishes it in 735 AD, dies just right after he finishes the book of John, but he's been working on that. And so it's now being translated for the first time into English. And that's, it was Old English at that period of time. Now, so it was first done right around there, around 700 or so AD. But now, most of the Bibles are still basically in Latin. Now you come up to, we're going to skip a, a long period of time because they're just using this Latin Vulgate most of the time until we get to the year about 1300 AD. In 1382, in fact, another English Bible um, is being translated. It's um, called the Wycliffe Bible in honor of the priest, and John Wycliffe, who is also an Oxford scholar, and he translates this, um, the Bible, into English. And there are pages of this that uh, are found, and I've even seen original pages of Wycliffe Bibles um, at the Scriptorium and in, in some other places you can find them. So the Wycliffe, what he wanted to do, John Wycliffe did not like that the Bible was only in Latin, and the common people, because of the Germanic invasions, they don't speak all of these, particularly in England, they don't speak, the common people don't speak that. And he wanted to have a Bible that any common person, the ordinary farmer, the peasant, could be able to pick up and read. That was his goal. Um, he also criticized a lot of other things that were going on in the church. Um, he started seeing the church is starting to become very corrupt and hypocritical and making laws that are not found in the Bible, um, building human traditions and stuff, sort of like what the Pharisees had done. And Wycliffe was really against this. And um, eventually what happens is, well, they start making laws where you can't do this. By the, by the year, that was, like I say, that was in um, 1382. By the year 1408, so just a span, you know, about 20 years or so in England, it becomes illegal to translate a Bible into English, into common English, without permission from the church. Um, this is the Roman Catholic Church at this time, but no, you got to keep it in Latin. So English Bibles, like the Wycliffe Bible, actually became banned. And a few years later, in 1415, Wycliffe Bible was totally, officially banned in the country. Um, Forty years after, after uh, Wycliffe's death, they actually dig up his bones. How goofy this is. The church dug up his bones, they exhumed his body, and then they burned him for heresy. What was his heresy? Putting the Bible into English so people could read it. You see how the church was becoming corrupt, is what was happening. Now, as I have said in some other lessons, if you've listened, there has been throughout history, um, in since the time of Christ, there's been a lot of things done in the name of Christ that have nothing to do with Christ whatsoever. Um, totally. You talk about the Crusades and, and um, some of the terrible atrocities and wars that came up done in the name of God. They, those had nothing to do with true Christianity. But that was the power struggle going on in the church at that time. Well, that was, um, like I say, that was in the early 1400s. By 1455, um, something happens. This is major. Probably the, one of the greatest inventions ever in human history. And it happens in Germany. A guy by the name of Johann Gutenberg actually builds the first printing press with movable metal type. This single invention is one of the most important things ever made. Even in the year 
uh, 2000 that we had just a couple of decades ago. I think it was Time Magazine did an, uh, an article on what was the greatest invention in the last millennium. I believe the printing press is what won, what they considered and just barely beat out the internet. But the printing press changed history. And when Gutenberg was putting this together, he thought, okay, I've got this thing. What should be the first document we print? He said, and decided, well, there's the most important document in the world is the Bible. So he actually made, a, um, printed a Bible. And it's called the Gutenberg Bible. And um, he had it illustrated, had artists then come in afterwards and, and use inks and paints and stuff to make it pretty, hand-painted letters and ornaments and stuff on the page. I actually have um, a, a page from a Bible made from uh, a Gutenberg printing press in my collection here. Um, this was in the year 1455. Now, when that happened, it changed everything because now you're not having to copy things by hand all the time. You've got a printing press. Though it would still be copied by hand for a long time. Um, about 50 or 60 years later, a guy by the name of Erasmus, he's a priest, a Greek scholar. He decides, let's go back and put uh, the Bible back into Greek. So he publishes a Greek edition and while he's doing it, he also makes another Latin version uh, of the New Testament. So um, this is in 1516. So we're, now we're going back. It seems like those two languages, Greek and Latin. And that's why you study, uh, if you're going into um, seminary and stuff like this, you, you study Greek a lot of times. Erasmus' goal, why was he doing this? He wanted everybody to be able to read a Bible. And he wanted it to be read and not have to go, because up to this time, if you wanted the Bible read, you had to go to a, to a priest to have it read. He wanted everybody to be able to read a Bible. He actually wrote, from the farmer in the field to the weaver at the loom, everybody should be able to read the Bible. His Greek text forms the basis of what we call the Texas Receptus, which just simply means the received text. The Texas Receptus is used now as a template by other church leaders coming along, Martin Luther, William Tyndall, um, and even the King, King James translation is based upon the Texas Receptus. It's a combination of both the Old and the New Testament. And um, like I say, Martin Luther, in 1522, Martin Luther translates the New Testament into German. Following him is William Tyndall, just a couple of years later in 1525, William Tyndall, who is a priest and also an Oxford scholar. He translates the New Testament from Greek into English. I actually have a uh, replica of one of his Bibles made like that, um, set up in 1525. Um, thing is, he can't get it approved in England. It's still a law. Remember, there was a law passed back with Wycliffe. You can't have a Bible in English. Uh, the common people can read, but that did not deter him. He felt everybody should be able to read the Word of God. So he has to flee for his life, and he goes to Germany, and he keeps printing Bibles, and he smuggles them back to England in sacks of corn and flour. Um, and in 1535, he, he publishes part of the Old Testament, besides the new. So he's putting both uh, translating from Hebrew into English. So he's putting together a what's called the Tyndall Bible. And this is in 1535. Not like that teacher said in 1611. This is 1535. Also in 1535, another thing happens. Now this is the period of when Henry VIII was the king. Now this is really interesting. Um, Henry VIII's second wife was in Boland. She was one who had her head cut off. Um, he killed her. But um, Anne Boland, um, if you recall the story with Henry VIII, he had been married to uh, Catherine, but uh, Catherine wasn't giving him a male child. And during this time, he fell in love with Anne Boland. And so he wanted to divorce Catherine of Argonne, and he wanted to marry Anne Boland. Um, the Roman Catholic Church wouldn't approve it. Thus, he starts his own church in England, and um, he becomes, becomes the head of it. And the king or queen of England is to this day still the head of the Church of England. Uh, we just had the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and now we have King Charles, her son, and he will be, and I believe it's in May, going to be taking on the official coronation ceremony where he will be proclaimed the head of the Church of England. The Anglican Church is the common name of this church. And Anne Boleyn was a Protestant. 
And so she didn't get in with the Catholic ways on stuff. And so she um, was following the, the reformers, the Reformation. And so she wanted a Bible made for her that she could read. And she has one made by a guy uh, named Miles Coverdale. It's called the Coverdale Bible. And it was dedicated for Anne Bolin. So we have the first complete Bible, the very, very first complete Bible ever made in English, solely in English, is the Coverdale Bible, and it was made for Anne Bolin, King Henry VIII's second wife. But remember, we're not done with Tyndall. In 1536, Tyndall is finally captured, and he's strangled, he's burned at the stake. His final words were, Lord, open up the eyes of the King of England. And he is called the father of the English Bible because his translation forms much of what is the basis of the King James that will be coming up later on. And we know that as our English Bible. We can trace all of our English Bibles back to Tyndall um, with this. But the very next year, 1537, another Bible pops up in England. It's called the Matthew's Bible. It's not, Matthew was not the guy who did it. His, you could have your head cut off if you get caught doing Bibles in English. So a guy by the name of John Rogers, under the pen name Thomas Matthew, prints a Bible published, and he does eventually get the king's permission in 1537. So the Matthew Bible comes along. Also in 1537, um, Thomas Cromwell, advisor to King Henry VIII, he entrusts Coverdale to revise the Matthews Bible and make a new one. And so they make a thing called the Great Bible. And the reason it's called the Great Bible, it was huge in size. It was just magnificently large. I've seen one. I've actually been able to, to hold one. It's, it's huge. Um, these things are big. And that's why it was called the Great Bible. So in 1539, the Great Bible is placed in every church in England by the order of Thomas Kramer, who's the Archbishop of Henry VIII. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's read aloud except during services and during sermons, but it is meant to be read. But then something happens. Henry VIII dies, his son dies, and um, very soon afterwards, and um, we have Queen Mary comes to power. Mary is the daughter of Henry VIII's first wife, who was Catholic. Mary is Catholic. She banishes Protestants. Um, she bans all Protestant translations to be destroyed, to be burned. Anybody found with one of these English Bibles, you will be executed. She executes John, Rob or John Rogers. She executes Thomas Kramer, burns him at the stake. Matter of fact, she's not done there. Like I say, if you got caught with a Bible, an English Bible, um, you, your family, your children would all be burned at the stake. Hundreds of people Mary had murdered, uh, all in the name of God for the Catholic Church. That's what was going on. This causes a lot of Protestants to flee England during this time. So they flee to Switzerland. Switzerland at this time was a major Protestant area. And so they they go there, and in 1560, the people who are there, they put together a Bible called the Geneva Bible, because that's where they were at, in Geneva. And it's a complete revision of the Great Bible. They took the Great Bible with them, and uh, with the Old Testament and everything, they, um, the Great Bible with an Old Testament translated from Hebrew. They, they make the Geneva Bible. Now, the Geneva Bible has a lot of history. For, for instance, that's the one, uh, it contains theological notes from scholars like John Calvin and, and others, Whittingham and others. Um, they're actually written in there as notes and stuff in, in margins and things. It's the first Bible also to use Roman type as it was made. The Geneva Bible is the Bible quoted in Shakespeare's works. Shakespeare actually uses the, uh, the Geneva Bible. Not only that, the pilgrims that came over to Massachusetts in 1620, this is the Bible that came over on the Mayflower, was the Geneva Bible, the 1640 edition of the first English Bible. And it's also another noteworthy thing about the Geneva Bible. It's the first Bible to omit the Apocrypha. What's the Apocrypha? The Apocrypha refers to several books and editions that were included in the early Greek and Latin translations of the Old Testament. The, the Septuagint often contains the Apocrypha, um, if you have one from about 100 BC. 
Um, what is this? It's a bunch of books. And by the first century AD, writers Philo and um, uh, Josephus indicate that there were Hebrew, some books in the Hebrew canon, um, and, and they, they listed what were the texts of the Old Testament, and they don't include in the Apocrypha. We know that the Hebrew people, the Hebrew nation, never considered them God-inspired. They're important pieces of literature, no doubt about that. But because they were never considered God-inspired, Protestants had them removed from the Bible to make our Bible just what is God-inspired. So um, in 1640, the Geneva Bible, they did not print the Apocrypha in it. And it's admitted in almost all English versions of the Bible today. There are some Protestant uh, churches that still use it, some um, uh, Escapil, uh, Esc Episcopal Church uses it, the, some Lutheran churches use it, but the Roman Catholic Church still has it, but of course that's not in part of the Reformation. And there's some very interesting books, but they're not God-inspired. They were never considered God-inspired, just important pieces of books to read, of literature. First and Second Maccabees are two of the books, and I'll tell you, they're great for telling you the history of what's going on between the Old Testament and New Testament. There's books called the Additions to Esther, there's Tobit, there's Judas, Songs of Three Young Men, Susanna, Baruch. Uh, there, there's a bunch of books, but they were never, ever, ever by the Jews. And they were written before the New Testament was put together, before the time of Christ. They're written in the in-between time between the Old Testament and New Testament. They were never, ever considered to be Holy Scripture. So they were kept out. Well, that was the bishops, or the, I'm sorry, the Geneva Bible. But we're not done. We still haven't got to the King James, if you notice. There's another Bible that pops up. There's the, the Bishop's Bible. Now, when Queen Elizabeth now comes to power and starts ruling in England, she's Protestant. So she orders several bishops in the Church of England to make a new uh, answer to the Geneva Bible, one specifically for the Church of England. Uh, since the Geneva Bible is Swiss, she wants to make, uh, is, you know, basically was done in Switzerland. She wants one in England, and they do. It's called the Bishop's Bible. And just right after that, um, Roman Catholics decide, well, everybody's making Bibles. Let's make a new one, because they're just using the Latin Vulgate primarily at this time. So they make the Reims Douay Bible, translated into English from the Latin Vulgate um, by a scholar by the name of Gregory Martin. Um, this happened between 1582 and 1609. took a while to do this. And it becomes the standard Catholic Bible, and it's still used in most Catholic churches today. A lot of Catholic churches use this. Um, maybe not most, but a lot of them uh, are still using the Reims Douay Bible. Um, and then, finally, we get to 1611, the King James. King James I, he's not a very nice guy. Um, <laughs> Matter of fact, he does a lot of things that are absolutely terrible. But one thing he did do that was pretty good, he commissions 54 different scholars to undertake a project. Instead of having one or two people do it, he puts a committee together and uh, of 54 scholars. He orders them to use all of the available resources. So they go back to all these Bibles that have been made, old documents that they can still find, etc. Everything that they could basically get their hands on dealing with the Bible, and they put together a brand new Bible in 1611. It is called the King James Version. Sometimes it's called the Authorized Version because he ordered this, though he officially never authorized it, never gave his royal approval of it. Um, but he did, that was the one redeeming thing I would say that he did in his reign. And like I say, it used the best manuscripts they could ever get at that time. And it's been revised a couple of times, but it's basically very similar. The King James edition is still available today. As a matter of fact, it's the, um, this year, so far this year, I've noticed we're, we're in December now, but I believe it was, uh, it's still ranking as the second highest selling translation in the world. Um, people still flock to use the King James. And I've been to churches, that's the only Bible they allow in their building. Uh, we won't get into that. But um, they, they uh, use this thing, they make it, and it's, they use everything. The, um, all different manuscripts that they could find, um, 
from hundreds of years back into ancient time to put this together, and it is a very popular Bible. Now, be, how accurate is it? Well, it's pretty accurate, because if you take a look at uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were discovered in 1947 over by the Dead Seas by a couple of uh, shepherd boys, um, we have found every copy of the Old Testament books except for Esther and numerous copies. And if you go back and you study these compared to like a King James, you're going to see doctrinally it's very, very similar. All oh, their spelling differences and grammar differences and stuff um, and, and things like that. But the doctrine in it is pretty accurate. Um, we can really rest assured our Bible is very, very accurate. A lot of that is due to the Masoretes and their way of doing things. Um, for instance, just to give you an idea here, um, in 1947, one of the scrolls that was found right off was a scroll of the book of Isaiah. And it's a complete book of the book of Isaiah, and it's like 40 feet long. Um, this copy has been determined to be written around 150 BC. That's the time period it goes back to. Almost all the Dead Sea Scrolls were before the time of Christ. And we can compare it and look, and it is absolutely amazing how accurate this is. Um, this really confirms, particularly if you take a look at the Masoretic text, which you can buy a copy of the Masoretic text, you look at that, wow, how accurate um, our Bible is. It's, it should really help you out and make you feel good reading it because it is so accurate. So, just a la uh, with that, actually, we've come to the end of this lesson. It's been a, a little bit of a long one, though. I apologize for the length, but that's a hard question to answer in just a few minutes. That's why when this teacher sat down for me and told me that the Bible didn't exist until 1611, and I was like, oh my gosh, there's a lot you don't know. And what I did here, I just flew through this information. This would actually be like a whole semester course in a seminary of how we got the Bible. There's a lot of other things I didn't talk about, but we'll have in future lessons in, in the, um, the future. Since we're talking about different type of Bibles, we're going to have a lesson series on different translations, modern translations and stuff, because um, that's another thing that comes up quite often. I get asked when I go and I, I speak at some place, well, what's the, what's the best translation? What's the most accurate translation? Well. We don't have time to go into that. We're going to do a series on that, and I'm going to talk about the popular translations we have today, giving you pros and cons of each one. But rest assured on this. The Bible that we have today is accurate. God has preserved His Word exactly as He promised He would in Scripture. The world may pass away. He says, my Word will never pass away. And that is true. So, until we meet again, take care. And may God bless. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.